0: Well, good morning. Hope we didn't have too many mishaps with the sticky cups. Um, but if we did, then we did. That's why the carpet's the color it is, right? <laughs> Actually it is. That's why that color was chosen, uh, in case we spill something. Um, I told you I wanted to talk about something uh, just briefly uh, one of the camps uh, is a local camp that we send kids to. We send kids to a lot of different Christian camps. Um, one of them is right down the road at Camp Wesley. Um, and uh, they have a fall festival. Uh, Ashley Phillips uh, worships with us. She's a sister here at this church. She works there. She runs that. And uh, there 's all kinds of things happening on october twenty third but if you want to help out with that, i mean there 's all kinds of stuff. Um, Ashley needs help, and uh, I think we ought to help her out. so you can talk to Ashley if you want to help out at this uh, this fall fest there at uh, there at Camp Wesley um, It's good to help each other out in different places, different parts in our life, and this is just one of the areas that she needs some help. She needs some more assistance, and it could be a lot of fun, so I encourage you to talk to Ashley. Uh, If you don't know Ashley, she was up here singing, um, and so you can talk to her if you want to participate in that. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, I want to get right into it. We've got a fair bit to talk about today. Uh, We have already talked about a a lot of stuff in in this sermon series, kind of the the weird or crazy things that we read about in Scripture that we're commanded to participate in in Scripture. Uh, But we started out the whole thing, and this is why so much of this falls on deaf ears. We started out the whole thing with being holy, being holy, to just accept the fact, just accept it that we are called, commanded, and allowed to be set apart, unique, sacred. And all of those, all of the, that, that description right there is, is just another way of saying different, different than a lot of people, different than the rest of the world. That's, that's the difference between having both feet in the kingdom of God. And one foot in our kingdom and one foot in God's kingdom. We just accept the fact that God wants us to be different, unique, special. And that way we can immerse ourselves in the craziness of Scripture. We looked at a few other things. We looked at oh, just a number of things. Eating the flesh and drinking the blood. Uh, you know, we, we looked at how Jesus talked about hating uh, our friends and family. Uh, even ourselves, you know, compared to him. He He wants this incredible love, uh, dedication to who he is and what he is. And, and through all of that, I told you that we haven't even gotten to the hardest stuff. With all this crazy stuff that we hear and, and the, what Paul calls the foolishness of Scripture, the foolishness of the gospel, we haven't even gotten to the hard stuff yet. The hard stuff is what we get into today and tomorrow. Well, next week. Uh, you can be here tomorrow if we can go over it. That's fine. Uh, today and next week, we get into the real hard stuff. And the real hard stuff seems just as crazy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again that we have the gift of study, the gift of applying your words, credible word, to our lives. We thank you, Father, that we have the chance to see, see creation, see reality, uh, the way it's meant to be, the way Jesus sees it. And all of these, frankly, Father, what would, would, would seem like strange things sometimes, all of these things in your word help us to see this. And we ask, Father, that you help open our eyes today, open our minds today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you're in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 is a part of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. This was one of Jesus' main addresses uh, during His ministries. A lot of people there, and He goes into a a lot of detail. Uh, Just different lessons and different ways to see the world and different ways to live. Uh, A change in perspective on how we see creation. Really, what it is is a description of... The kingdom of God. A description of the kingdom of God. It's not a complete description of the kingdom of God, but it's a part of the kingdom of God. And and, and that's what we've been wrestling with. Where where are we? What kingdom are we living in? We've been confronting throughout this series a couple of questions. And and these weren't specific. These weren't designed and directed for this particular series. They just pop up as you're going through so much of this. One of the things we keep asking is, do you believe in God or do you actually believe God? Do you believe in God or do you actually believe God? Is there just some cosmic something out there, some higher power? Or do you believe the words God speaks? Do you believe what He says Do you believe how he directs? You know, the Pharisees of Jesus' day, he's always butting heads with the Pharisees, isn't he? And it's easy for us to just kind of write the Pharisees off as bad guys. And they weren't necessarily bad guys, not all of them. But the Pharisees of Jesus' day believed in God. They believed in this God that they thought they understood. But Jesus is always railing against the Pharisees. I got one for you, Paul, Paul was a Pharisee, Paul believed in God or at least what he thought God was and it was his belief in God that caused him to persecute the church. It was Paul's belief in God that caused him to persecute the church. Philippians 3, 4 through 7, this is Paul writing. If someone else thinks that they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. He's describing himself. Hey, look, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. Look at verse 6. As for zeal, persecuting the church. That was a feather in his cap. When it comes to this zeal we have for what I think God is. It was his belief in God that caused him to persecute the church. Verse 7, but whatever were gains to me now, I consider a loss for the sake of Christ. Because that belief was misdirected into what he thought God was instead of believing God. Again, in James 2.19, you've heard this before. You believe that there's one God. Good. Good. Good for you, says James. This is the earthly brother of Jesus, which I think is just one of the greatest testimonies that there is about Christ. I mean, I, you know, I went to my sisters and told them I was the Messiah. I, I don't think they'd get on board, all right? James did. You know, Jude did. He had two other brothers, too. Maybe they did. We just don't read about them. James says this. You believe in that there's one God. Good, great. Good for you. Even the demons believe that. Even Satan believes that. In fact, Satan knows God more than you do. Better than you do. It's more than just believing in God. We've got to believe Him. We've got to trust Him. We've got to build this relationship with Him. What do you think Jesus meant when He said in Matthew chapter 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord. Not everybody who walks around says, I believe in God. Jesus says, That's not the kingdom of heaven. That's not the kingdom of heaven. That's the beginning of the baby step. You've got to trust me. The second question, of course, is that in which kingdom are you living? Which kingdom is your home? As we learned from the start of this series in 1 Peter 1 through 17, since you call on a father who judges each work work impartially, live out your time, live out your time here in this world, this life, this creation, this place, this culture. Live out your time as foreigners here, foreigners in reverent fear. Oh, this is mine. This is mine. I want this. I own this. This is where I belong. This is how I'm defined. Peter says, no, you aren't. No, you aren't. Stop hanging on to that nonsense. Live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. He says it again in two eleven through 12. Dear friends, I urge you once again as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sin, sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Whose kingdom are you living in? Are you living in your own kingdom, which is the same thing as the world's kingdom? Or have you decided that from here on out, even though I've got to live in this place, I'm going to be a part of God's kingdom, both feet in his kingdom. I'm going to work inside, live inside, experience what it is to be consumed by Jesus Christ as I consume him. And all of this is in our pursuit and acceptance of holiness. Because it's only after we embrace holiness can we embrace the foolishness of the gospel. Remember, that's what Paul calls it, the foolishness of the gospel. And perhaps I can accept these things. That might be what you're saying today. Maybe I can accept all of these things that Jesus has talked about. Because he's talking about stuff. So far, that's where the challenge is, to believe in some of the things that he has said. Perhaps we can desire and embrace being set apart, just realize that that's life. We can agree that we can consume who and what Jesus is, consume Jesus for our hope, our mission, our purpose, and our value, use him as our very identity. We can learn to cross that bridge of love and crucifixion of self one step at a time as we agree that our lives must be about living for and loving Jesus. All of this because we believe that Jesus rose from the dead, proving that he is who he says he is. We can, and many do, affirm this belief and the importance of these crazy things in our lives. But today, today Jesus says, okay, show me. Show me. Jesus says through all of these messages and through all the teaching that he's been doing throughout his ministry, there's been a lot of people sitting there nodding along. Nodding along, right? You say it, Jesus. You preach it, Jesus. Today, Jesus says, all right, now I want you to get up and I want you to show me. We think this is wrong? Do we think a challenge like this is contrary to Scripture? In fact, on the contrary, Jesus says this type of thing all the time. Probably the most uh, uh, famous thing that he has said Is in John chapter 14, very simply, if you love me, keep my commands. If you love me, do what I say. If you love me, do what I say. And we'll tell people, we'll even tell ourselves, we love Jesus. We love Jesus. Jesus loves me. This I know. I love Jesus. Jesus says, well, that's true. Do what I tell you to do. Do what I say. And that's no different than show me. What about James? Again, going back to James. You've heard this before. James 1, 22 through 24. Don't merely listen to the word and deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Oh, we, can, we can nod along and say amen all we want. James says that's empty. That doesn't anything. Every time we hear the word of God, we do what it says. He says that's the sane thing to do in life. Every time we hear the Word of God and reject the Word of God or refuse to obey, we are condemning ourselves. We've certainly lost the excuse of ignorance. Anyone who listens to the Word but doesn't do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself, he goes away and forgets what he looks like. Most of us would call that people that person a little awful, a little crazy. He says it again in James 2, 14 through 18. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? That's a rhetorical question, by the way. James is asking you, asking me, he's asking his readers, do you really think that's the kind of faith Jesus was talking about? (laughs) Come on, let's get serious. That's what James is saying. Let's get serious. You really think that's what Jesus is talking about? To say you're king, you're Lord, you're my Savior, and then walk about life, going about life, just as you would if you hadn't accepted him? What about grace? hmm? What about grace? What about accepting salvation through Jesus Christ and not earning it? I got news for you, church. This is something we need to remember, something I'm learning to apply to my life, and you need to apply it to your life. Accepting Jesus is accepting all of him, not just the parts you want. There's no such thing as accepting half of Jesus. There's no such thing as accepting part of him. The good things, the nice things, the easy things. Accepting Christ is accepting all of Jesus. To accept Christ is an absolute fundamental transformation of who you are. Last week, what did we say? The old is gone, the new is here. When we accept Jesus, the old is gone. The old isn't waiting. The old isn't still sitting there. The old doesn't get up and get to live life for a little bit. No, the old is gone the new is here. The old doesn't work the same as the new. The new doesn't act the same as the old. It's like taking your car in to get fixed, right? Starter goes out. You you want a new starter. Somebody puts on an old one that doesn't work, It works the same way as the broken one. You think something's off here. Something's wrong. This isn't right is what you say. The old's gone, the new is here. Again, it's a transformation of who you are. Romans 12, 1 through 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Not to earn God's mercy, in view of God's mercy. Because of the mercy He's already shown you, offer your bodies, offer yourselves, offer your lives as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Verse 2, don't conform to the pattern of this world, but what? Be transformed. It's a complete transformation of the creation by the renewing of your mind. And then and only then you're going to be able to do what God wants you to do. That's what Paul says there. You're going to be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Bottom line is, church, there is a point in your life, my life, there is a point in our lives of our families where all of this, all of this, has to be more than simply good advice. It has to be more than simply pleasant or nice or comforting. It's got to be more than theory. It's got to be more than acted upon when it's convenient. It must be who you are. Go back to Matthew 7, 21. Not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God. Now look at the whole passage. Back up a little bit. Look at the whole passage. I know you're in Matthew chapter 5. We'll get there. Look at the whole passage from about 1,000 feet. Don't get tunnel vision on the specifics about casting out demons and doing all these things. What does Jesus say? Matthew 7, 18 through 21. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. A bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is what? Cut down, thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, their results of their life, what they're doing. By their fruit, you'll recognize them. Again, going back to this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who, only the one who, what's that word then? Does. Does. Not accepts. Not agrees with. Not believes in. Only the one who does. That's the difference between believing in God and believing God. If I believe Jesus, then my life begins to transform. My actions transform. My thoughts transform. I've seen people part of a body of Christ for many, many years. And that transformation is hard to come about. But it's a necessary thing. It's a necessary result. Jesus is not saying that works bring salvation. He is saying that faith, true faith, is not going to fail to produce obedience to Jesus. Look, we make mistakes. We have moments of weakness. I'm I'm not denying that. I certainly have more than most. But we must not be content with that. We can't be content with that. We wrestle with sin because of the flesh. But, church, giving in is not wrestling, (laughs) giving in is not struggling. A lot of people say they struggle with sin. I just want to come back and say, no, trust me, you're not struggling with sin at all. I promise you. It's a fight. And we see in the Sermon on the Mount two of the greatest wrestling matches that we face. Because on the face of them, they seem crazy. One of them seems nearly impossible. We're going to look at that next week. But today we look at the other one, Matthew 5, 43. I told you we'd get there. That was just the introduction. Here we go. You've heard that it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus is getting this from from the law, the Old Testament law, Leviticus 19, uh, verse 18. Multiple places, though, throughout Scripture. Multiple places. God talks about this, loving your neighbor. However, you can look through the law all you want, and you're not going to find hate your enemy. God never says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And, and, and Jesus is very careful to say it that way. He doesn't say, it is written. He says, you've heard it said. I mean, you guys do this. You, you talk about this. He's talking to the religious leaders of the day. He's talking to this group of people. He says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Hate your enemy is just simply the way these religious leaders are telling the, these people to live this command out. Because it's easy. It's easy. Anybody can do that. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Well, if God wants us to love our neighbor, then clearly he wants us to hate our enemy. That's the way these religious leaders were looking at this. We've heard Jesus talk about loving our neighbor. The Good Samaritan's a great example. Jesus was asked by someone, who's my neighbor? And the answer he gives in the Good Samaritan, we looked at this a few weeks ago. The answer he gives is pretty much anybody you come in contact with. That's the answer. The Samaritan comes across his enemy. And he shows love and kindness. So if someone's going to ask, who's my neighbor? Can we ask the question, who's my enemy? Who's my enemy? And this question doesn't sit right with me. See, this was one of those weeks... Just for full disclosure, I wrote this last night and this morning. Now, I didn't get done with the original draft of this. I got done with the original draft of this on Thursday uh, afternoon, which is the same thing I always do. And I go through my my practice, and I go through all that stuff, and I make sure it's just the way I want it. There you go. And the whole week, I'm going over this, this question, who's my enemy? Who's my enemy? You see, I get done on Thursday, and I tell God, I said, look, I've got your message here. This is the way I want it. It's good. It's perfect. It's ready to go. And this week, God said, you sure? You sure? Why don't you think about that a little bit? I said, no, no, this is what I want. I said, I'm going to teach it. I'm going to teach it because I, 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 I know the passage. He said, you sure? See, he never tells me what it is. He says, I want you to chew on this for a little bit. I want this to roll over and over and over in your head. Because you know, when you wrote that question down, John, on Monday, you didn't like it. There was something about that question, who's my enemy, that you didn't like. So I want you to dwell on this. I want you to meditate on this. I didn't want to meditate on it. Finally, I did. You know that's how, we, that's how we follow God, isn't it? Fine. Meditate on it. You know. I don't want to. I'm doing this under protest, but I'll think about it. And the worst part is, he's right. He's right. I'm going through this, and it's yesterday, about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I finally threw up my hands, and I said, God, you're right. Who's my enemy? Because I'm going to go through who my enemy is. I'm going to talk about what it means to be an enemy. I'm going to talk about how you identify your enemy. And God says, great. He says, I'm not talking about any of that in this passage. Who's your enemy? What I wanted to say was, those who set out to do us harm. That's what I wanted to say. And then I wanted to talk about uh, who our enemy is. By the way, as an aside, your enemy is not somebody that you disagree with, okay? Or disagrees with you. That's not your enemy. just, Just forget about that. Enemy is a pretty strong term, isn't it? Love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemy. Boy, that's a hard thing to do. It's not somebody who you disagree with. It's not somebody who unintentionally hurts you. Your enemy is not somebody you don't like or somebody who doesn't like you, which is really good. Those who set out to do us harm. Maybe we can use that as a definition. As such, as I'm chewing on this, we don't have a whole lot of personal enemies. You don't have a lot of personal enemies. In fact, odds are, you don't have any. I'll tell you who does have enemies. Jesus has enemies. Jesus has a lot of enemies. There's a lot of people that just assume that Jesus didn't live, that Jesus didn't teach, and that people didn't follow Jesus. The follower of Christ may have general enemies, but the truth is they are enemies of Christ, not you. What's Jesus doing? He's using sarcasm here. He's trying to teach a lesson. When he says, love your enemy, when he says, pray for those who persecute you, Look at 44 and 45. But I, that's Jesus, tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven, so that you may be like me. Your enemy, if you guys, if you're looking around trying to pinpoint your enemy, that's not going to jive with the rest of Scripture. I'm out feeding the dog. And God says, hey, by the way, look at Ephesians 6, will you? I said, I will when I'm done here. He says, no, no, I want you to look at it right now. And that's Paul talking about us, how our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Not against flesh and blood. It's against evil. Against the dark forces of this world. So I would encourage you not to try to look around and pinpoint your enemy. If you're a follower of Christ, you don't have enemies. Jesus has enemies. Now, you might get in the way. You might take a lot of that that pain. You might take a lot of that persecution. But Jesus has enemies. And so if we don't have enemies, if Jesus has enemies, and if we read through the Good Samaritan, Jesus says, who's your neighbor? Pretty much everybody you come in contact with. What's Jesus saying? He says, I want you to be loving and compassionate to everybody you come across. Matthew 44 40, and 45, I told you this already. I, that's Jesus, tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemy. I told you this was hard. It's crazy. Nobody does that. That's where it gets crazy. Jesus says, love your enemy." Love those who persecute you. Love those who would do you harm. No one does that. I mean, think about it. Are you really going to ask God to bless somebody who hates you? That is nuts. That's crazy. And most of us don't do it. Furthermore, you might ask the question how do I even start? How do I even start loving my enemy or loving Jesus' enemy? How do I love somebody that I don't even like? How do I love someone who would love to do me harm? Look, I'm not suggesting that you start out with genuine emotional affection. But the act of love leads to genuine affection. If you're curious about that, you can read through 1 Corinthians 13. So where do I start? Remember, we cross these crazy bridges one step at a time, and we know the answer. Jesus already gave us that answer. Pray for your enemy. That's where you start. pray. Pray for them by name. In other words, you go to the Creator and you talk to the Creator about His creation. See, we don't want to do that. We dwell upon the the, the anger. We dwell upon the fear. We dwell upon the sadness. We dwell upon all kinds of things in our hearts. What you need to do is go talk to the same creator that created you. That's how you start loving your enemy. And you talk to your creator about that creation. And you realize that that creation, just like you, is fearfully and wonderfully made. That's who your enemy is. Fearfully and wonderfully made. The person you don't like, fearfully and wonderfully made. The person you don't get along with is an incredible creation, amazing creation. And you go to the creator and you talk to him about that creation. That's how it starts. That's how it starts. I told you, there's a moment where you have to do. You can believe in Jesus all you want, but there's a moment where you actually got to trust what he says. He says, look, I don't want you to hate your enemy. I want you to love your enemy. I want you to pray for him. Because your enemy is really my enemy, says Jesus. You plead with God to change their lives, change their hearts and their minds, and while you're at it, ask Him to change your own. See, what are we trying to do? When you pray for your enemy, when you love your enemy, and again, to be more precise, Jesus' enemy, we're trying to destroy them. Yeah. Can you try to destroy an enemy by loving them? <clears throat> Could you try to destroy an enemy by praying for them? I think you can. Most hated president in the history of this nation put it this way. After the Civil War was over, Lincoln was trying to help the South get back on its feet. A woman reproached his attitude and said, These are our enemies, she said. They ought to be destroyed. Madam, replied the president, How can I better destroy my enemy than by making him my friend? You see, this is what we're trying to do. In prayer, in love, You're trying to destroy your enemy by changing their perspective in yours. Martin Luther King even quotes Lincoln here, two incredible men understanding what Jesus is trying to say. And Jesus practices what he preaches. On the cross, Jesus looks out on the crowds yelling for his crucifixion. He hears the mockery. He witnesses the guards gambling for his clothes. He takes abuse from fellow convicts. He's nailed to a cross. He's nailed to the tree. And this thing that pops into his mind right now, Luke 23, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. You talk about praying for your enemy. You talk about showing love for your enemy. Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And by the way, read that real close. He didn't say, Father, help me forgive them. He didn't say, Father, help me endure this with a cheerful smile so that you can condemn them later, so that they can face your hellfire later. No, he goes to the Father, and he says, Father, for all time, forgive these people. That's what it means to love your enemy. Father, help me forgive them so you can punish them later. That's not what it means to love your enemy. That's not what it means to pray for your enemy. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus says, Father, you forgive them. Why? Because they're walking around in darkness. That's what enemies of Jesus are, walking around in darkness. He says, they don't know what they're doing. You say, Father, they don't know what they're doing. Matthew 5, 45, the second part of that verse, He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God chooses to pour out His grace and His love on the righteous and the unrighteous. As children of God, should we do less? Are we greater than God is? Are you? I mean, after all, God chooses to pour out His grace on the righteous and the unrighteous. We want to come in and, and set up the show on our own? We want to do it on our own. God, you sit this one out. You clearly don't know what you're doing. Let me take over. Do we make the decisions here or does God? You know, Job and his friends tried that. At the end of Job, God speaks and he asks Job, who do you think you are? And he's a righteous man, blameless man. Even God says he's a blameless man. He confronts Job and says, who do you think you are? I can't fathom the patience that God has and shows towards us. And by us, I mean me and you, every person sitting in here. An incredible amount of patience. Shall we not show love and pray for our enemies? By the way, speaking of who we think we are, we better show love to our enemies. The enemies of Jesus. We better pray for them. We better be patient with them. Because, church, we've already met the enemy. He was us. He was us. Romans 5, 8-10. through 10, But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies. Since we've now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? Look at verse 10. For if while we were God's enemies... We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? We were reconciled to God while we were God's enemies. You want to know who the enemy was? You. You. Me. So don't take this command from Jesus to love and pray for your enemies and throw it away. Because i got news for you. That's how life happens. That's how your life happens by loving and praying for enemies. Enemies of Jesus Christ and you and me reap the benefits of that. Because our eyes through that love has been opened to the truth of Jesus Christ. And so because the enemy was us, we have an obligation to pray for those who persecute us. But for the grace of God what makes us any different? And because of the grace of God, we are supposed to be different. Look at forty six and forty seven of Matthew five. If you love those who love you, what reward what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And by the way, Jesus doesn't hate tax collectors, right? He's just proving a point. Everybody else hated tax collectors, unlike today. He's just trying to prove a point there. Verse forty seven if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than the others? Even pagans do that. Remember, holy, different, unique, unlike anything else in this world. That's what we're called to be. Jesus says, if you're just nice to the people who are nice to you, literally everybody in the world does that. We need to be special. How do we know we're holy? How do we know... That I'm practicing practicing holiness. And to sum up the lesson, Jesus says this in verse 48 be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You know what the word there is? To sum up this whole thing, you know what that word there is? Holy. Holy. It's teleos, complete, total, mature, holy. Loving your enemies pursuing holiness, praying for them. If you get in the habit of loving your enemies, you get in the habit of praying for your enemies. I mean, this is almost like it's graduation day. Graduation day. I mean, you're getting there. If you surround your life with the same kind of mentality, and same type of vision that Jesus has for those who is nailing him on the cross. Remember, our enemies are not our enemies. They're enemies of Jesus. And we pray for our enemies and love our enemies. And I'm telling you, sometimes, let's just be real honest, sometimes with this command, I'm faithful and I succeed. I really do. And there's sometimes I don't. And I'm not content with that. I'm not happy with that. I'm ashamed of that. That, that somehow, in some way, someone who, who, who reflects this hatred of Christ on me would have so much power over me. That I would disobey Jesus in their presence. I hate that. I hate that. I hate that a lot. Our job, our job is to not let the enemy have power over you and me. How do we show? How do we prove? What does it take to destroy these enemies? To pray for them. And that prayer, that intercession, Those examples of love leads to this desire, leads to this compassion that they would be saved, that their eyes would be opened and their entire lives changed. That's what Jesus is looking for. He wants everybody to be saved. And he wants everybody to come to know what the peace and joy of following him is. Even your enemy. Your enemy, church, is fearfully and wonderfully made. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the challenge today to go out and and do, to actually apply these incredible commands, Father. We ask that you'll give us patience, that you'll give us this desire to follow Jesus Christ through this fire of prayer, through this fire of loving our enemy, this fire of loving Jesus' enemy. He led the way. He led the way. On the cross, he led the way. Father, help us to follow Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Please stand and sing.
1: Spirit strong in me, and my flesh may fail, but my God, you.
0: We're in the same boat uh, today. That was the first time I've heard that message. Um, You usually practice it before that, but so there you go. Anyway, that's Ashley. So if you want to help Ashley out at camp uh, during the October fun fest, right, coming up on the 23rd, unless it's the same weekend as the rush run and then don't help her, just ask her why she isn't here helping us, okay? That's what you need to do. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the love that you have for these people. We thank you for the love that you have for your creation. We thank you, Father, that your word not only gives us comfort and assurance, uh, but today is like like today, and it challenges us. It challenges us to be more tomorrow than we are today, to be more like Christ, your children. And, Father, we ask that you help give us courage, uh, give us patience, give us give us the eyes of Jesus to see other creations the way he does, fearfully, wonderfully, to be saved, Father, even if we don't uh, always get along. Father, help us to pray for God's creation. Amen.